0: and welcome to the second season of Let's Talk with Scott Ellis. I'm so glad that you're back. What a first season we had. Well, we learned a lot and we changed a lot and we grew a lot and we understand a lot more now than we did when we started. But I'd like to thank my guests from the first season, Becky Joe, Rowland, Nate Warner, Jamisha Dunn, Chip Hughes, Kay Inslee, Jason LaFleur, Josie Ellis, Tom Hare, and Dom Petretta. Thank you all for making the first season such a great success. We're looking forward to moving into the second season now, and we're going to start off with my discussion with Patrick Kendrick, a multi-award-winning author from Florida. I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation with him. Well, enough of hearing from me. Let's get back to, well... Me, (laughs) my interview with Patrick Kendrick. I hope you'll enjoy this. Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk with Scott Ellis. I'm so glad that you are here today listening because I'm super glad today that Patrick Kendrick is here to do the talking. My guest today is Patrick Kendrick, who uh, has six books out that he has written. He was knighted by the Fraternal Order of Police, which actually means that we are speaking with Sir Patrick Kendrick uh, for his articles on crime. He's won honorable mentions from the Mystery Writers of America and the Beverly Hills Film Festival, I could go on. So I will. Also the Opus Magnum Discovery Award from the Hollywood Film Festival and Florida Book Award for his first novel, Papa's Problem, and his other novel that uh, is a young adult novel that some of you may recognize called The Savants. That is one of the two books that I had the pleasure of narrating for Mr. Kendrick. So, Mr. Kendrick, Welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you.
1: Scott, thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you again and talk to you again. You know, we've done some work together in the past. It was a very enjoyable experience and it pushed me into doing more audiobooks uh, really because of your talent. So thank you for having me.
0: Well, I appreciate the compliment. Yeah, you and I have done two audiobooks together pretty early on in my narration career we did uh the savants that we just talked about and i'd like to get into that a little bit more because it was such an interesting uh story type that i don't think most authors would attempt to take on uh and then we also did acoustic shadows about a uh gun-toting teacher in florida who kind of saved the day
1: <laughs> yeah i would say so um you know, a lot of my stories come from the news and that's certainly one that did, you know, with the school shootings and that we, we have so many of them and and we've had several down here in Florida, as you know, and there's just no rhyme or reason to them. But the more I thought about them, I thought, what if, what if it was beyond just, you know, someone that was mentally ill shooting up a school? What if it was a planned hit? And that's where that book went, acoustic shadows. And, um, that was published by Harper HarperCollins uh, and sold mostly in the UK, actually. Uh, another one you did a great job on. So a lot of different voices there. You had the thugs, you know, you had your good guy, kind of a George Clooney kind of a guy. <laughs> and uh, I think you nailed that. <laughs>
0: yeah, that, that one was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting concept because, you know, although you know, she, the. Teach, and I don't want to give away too many spoilers for people that haven't listened or uh, read it yet. but uh, and if you haven't, boy, you should look for it on Amazon and Audible. Really interesting concept of of how you uh, spun it on its head in terms of, I don't want to say who the bad guy was or who the good guy was. but you you really played around and made your readers think uh, about, you know, Carrying a gun for for protection, and and what happens if you actually, God forbid, have to use it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and that uh, that story, you may remember the FBI agent lady in it. She was actually based on a character that I came to know when I was still in the fire service. And uh, so I always mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of imagination and uh, get the plot spinning around. So. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed doing it as much as I enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, so uh, it's been a popular book for sure. Thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then um, talk a little bit about the savants because that is is another one where you took um, some some characters from uh, quite literally all over the world and put them together uh, to work on this one particular project. And uh, again, another and in that book, I think we really did kind of as a movie for the ears we had some sound effects in there and and you know not not too many i know some listeners don't uh, appreciate those we didn't go over the top with it but we did add some some fourth dimension to it if you will
1: yeah it's um well it's it's a book that um you have to leave your imagination open for you know um you know there's a catastrophic event that happens, and all the best scientists in the world can't fix it. And our our main character, Dr. Stephen Pevnik, is studying a group of savants, all of of which may have um, social issues. They don't uh, always fit in. They don't always talk to a lot of people. They're kind of more inward. But most of them have a, a certain genius. And the book was based on some real savants. Some of which I came to know. Uh, Daniel Tammet is uh, is a savant that probably most people know. They call him um, Brain Man, and he's uh, he does uh, lightning calculations. So you give him any number times any number, and he can tell you. But by the time you finish asking the question, he's got the answer. Uh, There was Harvey Pete, who was the real. uh, He was a savant. He died a couple of years ago, but. He, you could ask him, what happened uh, 1946, on 1946, July 5th, 1946, or something like that, and he had a complete answer for you. He also did lightning calculations and had an unlimited memory. Uh, and, and the Asian girl was based on a savant from Asia, so they were all based on real people. And I think that's that's the part that most people can't believe, that they – it was a lot of it was based on, on real people and and some real science there. Uh, so you just have to let yourself go with it and believe that these things can happen and these people can do them uh, because they can. Uh, so that was the interesting part about it. And I don't know if I will say creative enough, but it was open enough to allow some adventure in there and speculation, some fantasy. And that's why we sold it basically as a young adult sci-fi uh, the whole story to that, though, is it actually started as a screenplay, and I had older adults in it, and I decided I, I wanted to I wanted to write, write something that my own children could read, you know, because most of my books are pretty dark murder stories and so forth, some true murder stories. So that's one they could read, you know. It uh, doesn't go too far over the edge. There's not a lot of you know, bloody murders or anything like that in it. It's uh, It's got a good positive story and uh, a good positive ending. And, and it's, um, I think, especially school age children, you know, that feel insecure and, you know, like they don't fit in. <clears throat> it's a really good book for them.
0: Patrick, if you would talk about the French character from Savants.
1: He was uh, uh, a black male, uh, uh, a real savant. Uh, from France, and he could sculpt any animal or anything he thought of. So, in in the savants, I made him the machinist that could put things together physically, based on someone else's des- design. Savants typically are very singular, as as you may remember from from the book. And the experiment by Dr. Stephen Pevnik is to bring savants together to work on a common project, and it just happens. Uh, the common project turns out to save the world. <laughs> so, a uh, pretty big project. So, uh, but uh, they they uh, they manage to work together and overcome their communication difficulties and and uh, learn to work together. And it's kind of a, uh, a metaphor for how people should operate and how they should get along and how we can all work together for a better result. You know. So that's that's. I think that's the whole cast of characters. Um.
0: So, if I remember correctly, he was also uh, the one who had Tourette's. Is uh, from you know from your your from your n- humble narrator? Uh, he 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 had Tourette's, and and he would go off into these you know as many will. Some of their tics are, are vulgar. And, 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 and you didn't really want to go there. So you had him trying to correct himself. And he'd come out, he'd, he'd stop himself mid-swear and change it to watermelons or, or something. And, and, and doing that in a, in a French accent, that was uh, mental and verbal gymnastics.
1: Well, as I mentioned, that was originally a screenplay, and uh, that's that's where I got the uh, the Beverly Hills Film Festival award was for best sci-fi screenplay. And I had thought of the characters being older at the time, but um, uh, as they were in real life, most of them were a little bit older. So I made them younger, more teenage, because I wanted I wanted the book to appeal to young people, because uh, young people. Still believe in things that they don't see. I mean, young people are more willing to believe things can happen, and and often make them happen. So it was just uh, it was I it was just a very positive uh, storyline that I wanted to write because not all of my stories are are that much fun and pleasant. You deal with crime and someone getting murdered and you know that kind of thing. So. It was a lighter book for me, and it was nice with fresh air. And, and uh, like I said before, you did a great job with all the different accents from all the different—you know, everyone was from a different country—and you did a great job with that. Well, thank you. Really a fun book.
0: I I have to tell you, there's a story that came out of uh, our relationship and this narration and this project that I have told a thousand times, if I've told it once. Uh, you know, I have a classroom where I work with. Uh, people who are interested in learning how to narrate. a uh, Shameless plug for the S.E.R. classroom. But anyway, I, I always push relationship, relationship, relationship. Be in communication with your author. And for narrators out there and authors that are in this process, talk to each other. It's super important. But the, the story that I tell is no matter how good you think you are, you should not be your own editor. And I narrated the first couple of chapters, and and there was this doctor, Dr. Pevnik, uh, from Australia, and I'm like, oh, all right, oh, I can do an Australian accent, no sweat. Oh, I do it and I send it off to you. And you said, that is a great Australian accent, Scott, but <laughs> Dr. Pevnik is from Austria. <laughs> 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 you know, and some narrators feel like, you know, they they can wait till the night before the book is due and send it on. You know, that would have been a horrific experience had I sent you the whole book the night before it was due. And you said, listen, the lead character, you got his country wrong. And if you look at a map, although Australia and Austria are very close (laughs) in letter formation, they are (laughs) not close (laughs) on the map or accent. And so you and I were able to work through that and change that accent right away before I went too far, you know, but it was a case of I I read Australia, I proofed Australia, I practiced Australia, never dawned on me that it was Austria. So, you know, I think for, for narrators that are listening to the podcast, authors that are listening to the podcast, relationship, 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 you and I got back onto the right track real quick and, um, averted what would have been a lot of work to go back and replace that character.
1: Sure. Sure, and and I think the value, the lesson in that, uh, for certainly for narrators, well, is that um, you're you're not just going to be reading a book, you know. You have to do these different accents uh, if if that's what's required. And and frankly, not everyone can do them. Uh, I found that out with other books. You know, I've I've had some people audition for books that, you know, maybe they just needed a southern accent or something like that. Nothing too bizarre, and. If you're not exposed to that, if that's not in your living world, like down here in Florida, it's pretty southern, uh, maybe not as much as Alabama or so forth. But uh, uh, definitely we have a southern lilt down here. And uh, I found people from up north narrators who couldn't do that uh, in some of my books that needed that. So to do French, Austria, Australia, the uh, Asian female. <laughs> um I think maybe there was only one American voice in there. <laughs> uh, so that was probably yours. So, uh, welcome to the book. You know? <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's let's change gears here and talk about your latest audio release. Uh, it's called American Ripper, uh, the Enigma of America's Serial Killer Cop. It's, it's narrated by James Romick. And my gosh, it peaked at number one in Audible new releases and was there for over two months, right?
1: That's correct. Uh, very surprising to me. Uh, and like we talked about before, the audio book, uh, it came out almost two years after the print book. Just didn't get around to it yet. I was too busy with some other projects. And uh, once I put it off for audition, uh, and let, let me preface, this is a true story about it. A, a true crime that happened. Uh, there was a serial killer cop that was active in the 1970s in, in uh, South Florida. And uh, I had written, I had worked on that book for some 30 years. And the, the truth be told, it was really like 35 years, but I had to stop it at some point and, and there's reason for that. The serial killer didn't like what I was writing about him. I sold some stories about him to newspapers and so forth. I interviewed him in jail, interviewed all the police and all the judges and uh, some of the families, uh, surviving families of of some of the victims. Uh, So a lot of work. And uh, that was halted when he started suing me some years ago. And that was right after I got married. Uh, My wife didn't like that. I hung out with serial killers and that one of them was suing me. (laughs) So um, I I made a promise not not to work on it. Uh, Anymore so But I had a lot of work into it Uh, The serial killer was eventually Himself murdered in jail In an appropriate fashion For a serial killer And I got to go ahead from my wife To go ahead and and see if I could get it published Uh, It went from Approximately 1400 pages uh, To the publisher Who said nope (laughs) Uh, And uh, Then it went to 1100 pages and the publisher said, "Nope. Uh, I'm not putting out a Webster dictionary. Now we got we got have something a little more compact. And finally he accepted a a version that was about seven hundred and fifty pages and managed to whittle it down and space it to about six hundred pages. So that's that process. And then, as far as finding someone to do the audio, you know, I put the books out uh, for editions, you know, like that's what that's what authors do, and either do a royalty share or you know, some common agreement with with the actors and uh, narrators to do it. In this case, I put it out, and within two days, I had 33 auditions. 90% of them were very good. That was the toughest decision there. I was really struggling between a few of them and had my wife listen to some and my my son listen to them, and uh, everyone had a different idea. So Mr. Romick had an extensive history 27 years on Broadway, uh, accomplished actor, has done films and TV shows as well. And I was just really lucky to get him. He read it. He performed it, I'll say, uh, very much in a dragnet kind of way. The The old series, Dragnet. You know, it was kind of a hard voice. You know, here it is, You know, 1972. You know, that kind of thing. And I just think he did a wonderful job with it. And the fact is, You know how often you go back and forth and back and forth with the author and the narrator performing it uh, to get things right, maybe change this a little bit. I'll be honest with you, we did very little of that. I think he just nailed it. Now, we had a gentleman's agreement. It was supposed to be done, I don't know, a couple of months earlier or something like that, but I wasn't worried about it. I I wasn't on a deadline with it. And uh, and he told me, you know, give me a little more time because he was super busy he, uh, I said, sure you know, uh, and I think he just he self uh, edited himself, you know, and and he just did a wonderful job. And I was going through it trying to find mistakes, and and and, and in my opinion, he really cleaned it up from the writing, you know, because you you break off into all these little sub stories when you get into a true crime story like that, uh, where it breaks off from uh, the surviving families uh, interviews to. The police procedural to the uh, the prosecutor to the defense attorney, and, and all their lives, and how they all came together, and, and the result of that. And that the, uh, the characters of real life, like the judge, was a real life character. I mean, he wore a wig, he wore an a, a old black robe that was so old that it had turned purple, and he wore a gun under his robe. So these are real life characters that, that I think James Romick uh, just nailed. And his performance. So that's uh, that's uh, American Ripper that uh, went on to win the Royal Palm Literary Award from the Florida uh, Writers Association, and it was made into a documentary by a company from um, uh, Ireland. It's called um, Descent of a Serial Killer. It's been a really good seller uh, for a book that was out for two years. And that's something too, too, to mention to writers and, and narrators that. The narrating part of it, the performing part of it is a whole new art form. You know, it's not it's not just a written book anymore. It's a performance. And and some people like we talked about, you know, I travel a lot. I like to listen to audio books and it allows me to do so and and see a movie in my own head about whether I wrote the book or not. But even my books, when I hear them, are new to me. <laughs> so got to do it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's let's take this opportunity to to listen to a sample and and hear Mr. Romick at work. So this is a sample of American Ripper, the enigma of America's serial killer cop written by Patrick Kendrick, narrated by James Romick.
2: Chapter one, the abduction. I heard a slight groan and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. From The Tell-Tale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe July 21st, 1972 At the end of a warm and brilliant day, Nancy Trotter, 18, and Paula Sue Wells, 17, trudged their way along Highway A1A trying to hitch a ride. They'd been enjoying the Florida sun on the welcoming shores of Jensen Beach, and now they faced the task of getting home. Home being a temporary place in Stewart, a small town with a populace of about 5,000 that lay a short distance to the south of Jensen Beach. The girls walked slowly, occasionally extending a thumb when a car would go by. They were sunburned and tired, but pleasantly gratified as only a day at the beach can gratify two young girls with adventure in their hearts. Nancy and Sue, as her friends called her, had only known each other a short while. They'd met while both were hitchhiking to Chicago. They quickly became friends and decided to abandon the Chicago trip and thumb to Florida to get a suntan. The girls were similar in height and build. Beyond that, they were complete opposites. Nancy was fair-skinned with long, straight, blonde hair that ran down almost as far as her elbows. Sue was darker, her hair short, Wavy, and almost black. Both girls were attractive, especially in their bikinis, but they wore loose fitting clothes over their swimsuits, an example of the modesty with which they were raised. The two of them came from equally small towns Nancy from Farmington, Michigan, and Sue from Garland, Texas. Small towns like these seemed to instill in their young a good sense of morals. Even if in so doing, they also instill an almost unbearable and universal curiosity that eventually compels girls like Nancy and Sue to wander out and find answers to questions a small town cannot answer. The girls barely heard the sheriff's car as it idled up next to them and stopped. The squawk and fuzz of the radio brought their attention around to the patrol car. A Martin County sheriff's deputy stared out at them from behind the green tinted window glass. On the side of most sheriffs and police cars are the words to serve, to protect, usually above and below the star-shaped insignia on the car door. Sometimes the words are stamped into their badges or delicately engraved on plaques or whatnots around the department's offices. Regardless of where the words are found or if they are found, they are always implied. The words symbolize the whole meaning of law enforcement in general. They are the servants of the public, the protectors of the people. When you are in distress, the sheriff is a welcome sight. They make you feel safe. You girls know it's illegal to hitchhike, the deputy asked as he stepped out of the car. The girls looked nervously at each other and shrugged their shoulders. They shook their heads, indicating they did not know it was illegal to hitchhike in that area. The patrolman's attitude seemed to ease up a little, and he slid back behind the wheel of the car. Nancy and Sue suspected they might be in some sort of trouble, so they did not move. They heard the deputy call into his station. They did not know to whom he was speaking, but heard him say, I've got two girls here, requesting permission to take them home. A moment later, the deputy got out of the car came around and opened the back door for the girls.
0: So there you have it, a very interesting beginning. Uh, This book runs 19 hours, 33 minutes. It's available on Amazon.com and Audible.com. Fantastic value for your money because you're going to be listening for almost 20 hours and engrossed in this story. Uh, As we're recording this, today I checked the numbers and you know the book is still at number four for Criminal Procedure and Law, number 18 for Law in General, and uh, still number 23 for Serial Killers and True Crime. Patrick, congratulations on a great success in this book.
1: Thank you so much. It it has been uh, beyond my expectations, and um, if it proves nothing to anyone out there, um, you have to consider putting your book into audio. It, it's going to open it up to a whole lot of other people, you know, not the least of which are, are blind people. that can't read uh, uh, unless they're doing a braille thing, but it, it brings a performance to them. They can see a movie in their head and 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 hear a story and live the experience. And so, uh, it's just a it's an automatic thing for me now. Every every book I do always be audio. So, but it's been good, and and I appreciate you. Uh, acknowledging that, and and, uh, and uh, you've been part of the process from the beginning with me, and, and I've, I've enjoyed every one of them.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. Before we continue with this episode, let's step aside for a moment to hear more about SER Classroom, a sponsor of Let's Talk with Scott Ellis.
3: Learning to become a narrator or a voice actor just got easier. The SER Classroom, is a self-paced, video-based platform with weekly live meetings with Scott and other mentors in his program. You could learn how to become a narrator or a voice actor by watching YouTube, or you can cut through it all and learn from one person, have a team of mentors to help and talk directly with the teacher. I joined the classroom in the spring. And what I learned first was that voice acting is not just putting a microphone in front of your mouth and recording. What I like best about the classroom is that after I completed all of the classes, I could go back and refresh my memory on any specific lesson that I chose to. The most important thing is that Scott and his team were available to me at any time with any question. I really needed their support and I got it. Visit www.serclassroom.com to learn more or email scott at scottellisreads.com to set up a one-on-one conversation before you jump in. We look forward to seeing you in the classroom.
0: If you're interested in becoming a voice actor or audiobook narrator, I hope you'll reach out to the classroom. Let's continue with today's episode. You know, a couple of statistics for you to reinforce that audio. Uh, in 2021, for the first time, audiobook sales eclipsed uh, e-book sales. Not the paperback and the hardcovers; those are still the winners. But I travel around and I speak with writers' groups about kind of educating the authors in in how to get their books in audio and what to expect. And one of the the subtitles of our of our talk is that. Every fourth reader is actually listening. So, you know, when you when you think about, gee, is it worth doing an audio book? You know, for everybody, maybe not. It depends on sales. But if you can kind of say, gee, you know, if I can look at my sales, you said this book was out for two years. You look at your sales and say, if, if I'm going to do 25% of those sales again in the audio version, um, hmm, maybe it's worth it. And did you did you find that after the audio version was released and started selling, was there any effect on uh, the paper and e versions of that book? And second part to the question, did you notice the rest of your body of work kind of hit a, a ripple of up sales?
1: Absolutely. Um Particularly the print version of American Ripper. Uh, it, it went crazy as well. Uh, to the point when my publisher called me up and said, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, I said, nothing. I, I had the audio book camp come out and uh, I reserved the rights to all, all my books, the audio. I reserved the rights for it. A lot of publishers still don't get it. You know, when they, they go, okay, yeah, you can have them. It doesn't mean anything to me. They don't sell that well. Well, maybe that was true five years ago. It's not true anymore. They, the sales of all my books started going up uh, during COVID. And and then this book, as, as we talked about, was out for two years. It had moderate sales. It got some recognition, some awards, and so forth. But when the audio book came out and some podcast came out at the same time, uh, it just blew up and and uh, within a couple of weeks, my publisher called and said, Hey, what are you doing to, you know, we're selling like crazy in the UK and Australia is like, there's that Australia. Coming. <laughs> and, and I said, particularly down there. I mean, I haven't, I, I don't do any international marketing at all. The, uh, the, the people that started hearing about the book from the podcast have a choice. They could listen to the audio. Um, or they could list, you know they could read the book themselves. So ebooks, uh, I was I had three top ten spots in, 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 in Kindle uh, that held on for several weeks. You hate to see it slip out, but you know hey, you, you take it when you get it. It's a It's a little lottery ticket, you know. And then the audio uh, stayed just until this last week. It was the number one new release for over two months, about two and a half months. Uh, and it's, uh, it's still up there in the top 10 or 20, something like that. So, um, if you're not doing it, people <laughs> jump on the audio wagon because you're, you're missing a market there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I'm glad that you feel that way. Cause you know, I certainly as the, as the narrator and, and production company feel that way, but it's, it's nice for authors to be able to hear it from another author cause it's it's not just me <laughs> so um you know you you have been doing a really nice job of of getting the word out if if people want to hear you talk more about the the plot and and the workings of the book,, uh, you know, you were episode one hundred ninety three of the most notorious, which I gotta admit is one of my favorite podcasts. I'm a big Eric Rivennas fan, so uh, and it was also the topic of a Episode of uh, the Morbid podcast, which, you know, with, with podcasts being so big, it's proving that people are choosing to listen to their content, just like audiobooks. I want to switch from the, you've talked a little bit uh, today about what American Ripper is about, how it came to be, but I want to dive into that process a little bit more. You, we heard in the sample that it is very, you you used a word while we were, um, narrative. <laughs> I can't come up with the word narrative. It's a very narrative style uh, where it almost feels like you were there. You know, you talked about, you know, the, the police officer sliding into the seat. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, Patrick. You didn't know that he slid into the seat. But you had the vision to put together a story to help the reader and the listener really get this mental image and you did a great job of that all the way through the book but you also have the the court transcripts and the interviews and the 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 uh, evidence lists how do you approach how do you keep track of where you are with the mountains of evidence and material and ideas that you had. I know that's a super long question. Good luck. I want to hear about the process of how the book came together.
1: That was uh, that was the challenge of it. You know, when you're writing a victim book, your, your challenge is to follow, you know, an act one, act two, act three format, but a true crime narrative doesn't always follow that way. And, and, as I said, I did a lot of interviews that I taped with everyone that I interviewed. Uh, and, you know, I talked to him on the phone for several, the killer, several times uh, when he was in a minimum security prison, he was able to talk by phone. When they moved him up to Florida State Prison, he did not have that some maximum security, and I had to go in and meet him there and tape him. I was on, uh, and at that time they had a rule that if you were a book writer that could make money off of one of these true stories, that um, they wouldn't allow you in to see the killer. Uh, you would get the only thing you could do is is come in as a journalist, and that's actually where I got my my journalism uh, credentials, my reporter's uh, press badge, if you will, from uh, Police Times Magazine. I had a little badge. I was a reporter. And uh, just again serendipity, I went to the prison. Took me two years to get into CM, and this is back in the '80s when I started working on the book. I went there, and I had an attaché case uh, with camera broke down in it, which I wasn't supposed to have with me, and a recorder, which I wasn't supposed to have with me. And but I had a three-piece suit on when I came there to the prison, and they said, "Oh, you must be his attorney," and I said, "Yeah, that's correct." And so I was there with him for five hours. And then, um, uh, so when you talk about some of the details in the book, I mean, some of it is logical conclusion you come to, okay, how he slid into the seat. Uh, but some of that is actually from interviews. Uh, you know, the two girls that were the, the, the biggest, they had the biggest testimony against them, uh, the two that lived, obviously, could tell me things uh, that lent to the reality of it, you know, and, uh, him gripping a steering wheel until his knuckles were white and, and how his face changed. And I saw that when I met him and and talked to him, you know, as long as you're friendly talking to him, you know, he's, he's friendly talking back, but when you get down to, Hey, look, it looks like you really did kill these girls. And I, I want to know what caused that. On one hand, bragging how he killed people. On the other hand, trying to tell everybody he was innocent. So you can see those, I could see those changes that, where he was getting uh, upset with me. That ended up going on for some time. You know, he ended up suing me, I was telling you about, and, and, uh, until he was murdered himself in jail. So, and some of the descriptions, uh, I, had the, um, I had the police reports where they uh, in, interrogated uh, other people in the case his wife uh and the some of the victims families and, and so i i got a little a little bit of information from all of those people that could help me just like building a character it helped help build those characters in the book that were just having to be real people and and make their lives more real uh and i'm not sure if that answers your your long question with a long answer but um that's I do think there's um, quite quite a bit of visionary reality that you can get out of the book, mainly because it it came from the voices of the real people.
0: Yeah, it, uh, I uh, I wouldn't have any idea where to start. I wrote a sentence once. Uh, it wasn't very good, but I wrote a sentence, and you know, I I uh, couldn't even imagine. Writing a book, and you know, I did spend over twenty years as a literature teacher. in In sixth grade, um, I I was in sixth grade as a teacher, not a student. I wasn't in sixth grade for twenty years, but um, you know, so I have a lot of experience with books from the page turning aspect, rather than say the pencil sharpening aspect. But, um, so so it sounds like you know everything that because you were able to talk with him, you were able to observe and and you could kind of store those nuggets away and they would evidence themselves as you're writing, say, ah, you know, yes, I've seen that facial expression change. And then because you saw it and it was explained to you by the girls, you were able to to flesh it out and make it um, become real on the page. I know when I'm narrating a book, I have, you know, tons of files of, you know, the chapters in progress and the, the you know, I can't imagine how many files you have of you know, police reports and when to use them and transcripts
1: and when to use them. Oh, I could show you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a pile of them still. I got them out of the attic uh, because I think I told you I'm working with a cold case detective on a a recent uh, find. They've they've identified the girl's remains that were found in 1974 and we're 99% sure it was George Schaefer that killed her. Uh, And I didn't think I had photographs um, but they do, and, and that big pile I took out of the attic, and um, my wife's not real happy about it, taking up a good part of our dining room, but uh, they're looking specifically for how he tied knots, and because they still have a, a knot of baling wire that they found on the skeleton of, of this most recent uh, victim they, they identified, but you know there are, there are photographs of the crime scenes, uh, and and uh, there's transcripts from every single person, every cop that worked on it, every attorney that worked on it, uh, other criminals in jail that he talked to. Uh, it's it's a very thorough, and I can't say it's just me. This is this is all public domain. I mean, if you are willing to do the work and and you manage to get a, a, a journalism certificate allows you to get in jails and get in the courthouses and get that kind of information, that helped. Uh, So it's it's putting it together and it gets right back to telling a a story, a good story. A good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, You'd like to have a protagonist and an antagonist. We certainly had the antagonist, the bad guy. I'm not sure who is the hero of the story to be honest with you. Um, No one particularly comes out looking great, you know, uh, his, his, his attorney ends up marrying his wife, uh, the killer's wife, um, uh, a month after the trial's over. The state attorney's chief investigator gets busted for being in league with the biggest drug smuggling in Florida history. So there's all these little offshoot stories that, um, it, it reads like fiction, I think, because of that. And people, people, Comes down to this, Scott. People wanted a good story, and like I say, it's the basic beginning, middle, end, and the characters that make it up. So uh it was all there. It just took a lot long, long time to put it together. <laughs> Three games, so and a couple lawsuits and lots of threats on my life. So wow.
0: Oh. So you've you've clearly met with success uh more than once and in more than one. Genre. So let's let's focus on um, writers who may be listening, who are new, relatively new. What would you tell them to make sure they do or make sure they don't do as they start off as a in a career of writing?
1: I, I would say whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you have to do the research. Uh, you know, even in Acoustic Shadows, I had to look into. These school shootings and the police that investigate them um, and extended family uh, that was based on that was also serial killers and all the serial killers in, in the book were they were fictionalized, but they were based on true stories. It's it's nice to make up a story, but if, if you're just making it up out of your head, even if you're doing sci-fi, other world planets, you know, you have to do some research that gives that. Enough credibility to be believable to any reader—sci-fi, fantasy, fairy tales, uh, detective fiction—and uh, there's a whole different group of those, you know, from from the the cozy murders, which that phrase just uh, chokes in my throat. <clears> throat> friends that are cozy murder writers, and I I always tell them, listen, sister, uh, <laughs> they're not nothing cozy about about murders, but uh, and so there's this uh, one author I work with quite a bit doing a talk, and she does, she talks about her cozy books, and we call mine crazy books, because mine are very graphic and, and detailed, like real crimes are, and she does a quaint little, you know, it was Miss Marple, and, and you know, in, in the kitchen with, with a lead pipe or something, you know, like the clue game. So everyone's got their own taste, uh, especially with that kind of reading. And uh, that's the best advice I can, I can give to anybody is know your who you're writing for, and and write what appeals to you. And when, in the case of a nonfiction book, uh, it may appeal to you, but you've got to get ready for a lot of work and be prepared for some fallout from that. You know, that's just the way it is with nonfiction. Uh, people take, um, they're not happy if you say something unkind about them in a nonfiction book. Uh, so I'd be aware of that. And and with the nonfiction, I think you've got to be ready to go that extra step. And you're, you're putting yourself out there on the line, uh, as you are with most books anyway. I mean, but you write a bad book that's fiction, worst case, is nobody buys it. You know, if you write a bad book uh, or even a good book, uh, nonfiction, some true crime thing, you're going to hear about it, you know? So uh, best advice is any book you do, lots of research, know your characters, know your plot, know your setting and go for it.
0: Yeah. Great advice. And um, you know, I can, I can attest to, you know, like you're talking about do the hard work, but also that element of um, I'm I'm working in, in two books right now, one where the author has done a great job of uh, changing the names to protect the innocent, so to speak, including him himself uh, to the to the point that I don't even know his real name. So he's really shielded everybody uh, in his story. And that seems to be a good way to go. Josie, my wife, is... Um, editing a book right now that they've had to actually go back because uh, some of the people that the book is about, again, it's nonfiction, uh, feel that they weren't shielded enough. So let me ask you about your feeling on reviews because you've won some fantastic awards for your work. You've been runner up several times, but in the category of you can't please all of the people all of the time, how how would you suggest new writers, and also how do you uh, accept and compartmentalize, I guess, uh, the fact that in a review list you can have great review, great review, and then a not-so-great review. What do you do with reviews, good or bad?
1: Well, the first thing I will say is you go out to the nearest store and you buy yourself a thicker skin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you can find that thicker skin and get comfortable in it, that's you have to have that. Uh, my first book, I was just uh, chagrined by getting some some uh, poor reviews, and I'm going to tell you right now, the more reviews you get, and I'll use some people specifically in a minute, the more reviews you get, you're looking at the five-star thing. You want the five-star, four-star, something like that. The more reviews you get, just statistically, that you will not get much above, like, say, even with a really good book, three three and a half stars, and I'll give a case in point. Just look up Stephen King. Stephen King, or whatever big author you know, like the guy sells a million books, and he'll have ten thousand reviews. He he can't get out of about a three and a half star range because you have a certain element of people who live negatively, and 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 want to throw the ball at the glass window um whether they are a good picture or not and and some of the stuff you read uh like I said it was I was so sensitive to that in my first book second book and after the third book I was like you know people are going to have their different opinions and uh, you know there's been some great movies out that people go to see and I go to see them and go man you know um I I'm not seeing that same thing that the same feeling. It's where your head is when you're reading a book, uh, what your preconception of the story, uh, and you can't change that about people. And everyone's entitled to their own belief and and whatever they want to review. And so I I definitely have the thicker skin now than I did in 2008 when my first book was published.
0: That's, That's great advice there's that old thing about you know like a a restaurant or a store if if somebody is satisfied they'll tell a friend if they're dissatisfied they'll tell everybody uh you know so that kind of makes sense when you're talking about asking people to be realistic and recognize that no you're not going to get five stars on everything you can't you can't it would seem to me that reviewers you know when they buy a book let's use your stephen king example uh, when people buy a Stephen King book, they expect to enjoy it. They expect to like it. Therefore, they consume it and they move on. Where it's if they don't enjoy it and they don't think it was up to what they expected, that they're more likely to go back and leave a review. So, you know, when you get some some bad reviews, you've got to figure there is a, a some multiple of people who really enjoyed it just didn't take the time to go back and, and leave a review. So yeah, I, I like that. I like that thought, you know, and, and uh, you can't change a thing, you know, unless, uh, unless you start to see a thread perhaps, or a trend, every negative review is saying kind of the same thing. Maybe I'll rethink what I'm doing, but otherwise you kind of have to stay true to yourself. Would you agree?
1: I, I you do and and I think more so than written reviews that are are often done by i think some frustrated people <laughs> uh, and and um uh, i i I think the word of mouth is the best review uh that people can give and and uh I think the books I've sold have done more with word of mouth or um what I really enjoy doing is book signings. And even if it's a tiny little outlet or something, I enjoy talking to people about my books. And I, I think that's a great way to spread the word. And people want to have a relationship with the author. And I think sometimes the reviews that you read, like on, on Amazon or, or iTunes or, or whatever, they're missing that relationship with the author and they're frustrated. And maybe, you know, I, I'm just guessing, but I also know that, uh, I've seen some movies that were touted to be great movies and I go to see them. And, and again, you know, depending on my mood that day, you know, maybe it's just, uh, maybe you're in a rush or something. Maybe people are in a rush to read a book and they can't really sit there and absorb it like they should, you know, there's, there's no explanation for it. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not getting many one stars. So I'm, I'm happy about that, but, uh, I realize there's going to be a certain uh, number of the population that are just that way. And um, maybe I'll change them with the next one is all I can say.
0: (laughs) That's great. I love the positive attitude. I love it. So Mr. Kendrick, you have six books out already. What's next in the pipeline?
1: My next book coming out will be a sequel. You know, my, my, Publishers, all of them, have said, "Why don't you do series?" And I've just been standalone book guy. I that's I, I write a story and I think it's complete. But uh, my wife always wanted to see uh, a sequel to Papa's Bob, my first book. My publisher, I told I I would do that, uh, and we kind of made a deal. He he did American Ripper, which he was reluctant to do because it's so graphic. Uh, and you know, so real and so horrible, um, with uh, you know, true true crime killings. Uh, but he said, I, I'm I'm going to do this, uh, and now he's really glad he did because he's he's making money from it. <laughs> but uh, he said, but you still owe me a sequel to Papa's Problem, so I'm almost finished with uh, that. And you know, uh, Papa's Problem had um, um, Hemingway in it. He was a suspect in a murder, and. And the newest one, uh, Henry Ford, is a suspect and a murderer. So uh, I'm bringing back my character, Emmett McWayne, the uh, a former Scotland Yard inspector. And it's set back in uh, in the 40s, the early 40s, as the war is coming, World War II, is, uh, is happening in Europe. Uh, and that's where the first book left off. So the fact of the matter is, when I wrote the book, uh, my character was... 20 years older than me, and now, <laughs> and now in the sequel, I'm about 20 years older than him. He hasn't aged much at all, but uh, I, I have, and hopefully I've learned some some things about writing along the way. Uh, I have another one finished. Uh, uh, it's called Carnal Gift. It's a it's a standalone book, unless uh, someone thinks it can go farther. It's an odd story. It's, it's another murder story, and I, I, I can't go too much into it. I don't want someone to steal the idea, but it's uh, a suspect uh, in the murder is, uh, is, is someone that could not possibly be a, a killer, but um, it appears that he is, and you don't know, and now he's missing, so you don't know if he was a killer that's out on the lamb or someone kidnapped him, and and, of course, our main hero is a firefighter again. So, you know, thumbs up to them and <laughs> a little bit about firefighters. So uh, that's that's next. And and, and, and uh, I'll do a third Emmett McWayne book as well. And uh, I'll have another famous person that goes under the fire in, in that one. And uh, hopefully we can clear his name.
0: Huh, that's a great concept. I love that. So where do people find... Uh, find you, find out more about you, find your books?
1: Well, uh, I have a website. Uh, it's www.talesofpatrickkendrick.com. I'm uh, on, on Twitter, but you can go to my website. Uh, you can find my, my books on Amazon, of course, uh, iTunes, Barnes & Noble. Hopefully, I'll be coming to a town near you and having a talk here and there. Uh, I plan on doing San Diego Bouchercon next year, uh, and uh, Killer Nashville, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to that one yet, that's a nice nice little uh, conference in Tennessee, and then I'll be doing Slew Fest again in, in South Florida with Mystery Writers of America, um, who I also do uh, movie reviews for uh, their newsletter. so, uh, and, I, and I usually review them positively, because <laughs> I know how it hurts.
0: Right. Right. Well, Patrick Kendrick, I want to thank you so much for your time today, and I want to thank you for the, the gifts of the written word and the audio uh, that you have brought into the, the world for people to enjoy. It's uh, really some some great stories. And for my listeners, uh, check him out, talesofpatrickkendrick.com. And listen to some samples, can hear about him on those other podcasts that I mentioned. I think you'd really enjoy following this author. So again, Mr. Kendrick, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Scott. I appreciate your time and, and, and all your work. Uh, and it's been great working with you in the past and I look forward to working with you again in the future.
0: Well, there we go. That's our first episode kicking off Season 2. I'd like to thank my guest today, Patrick Kendrick. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. And to my dear listeners, thank you so much for your time. Be sure to subscribe and like our podcast so that you find out when we have more episodes coming out. Our goal is to have one every other month uh, this this year, so Season 2 will continue on and Maybe we'll put in some bonus episodes toward the end. Who knows? Stick with us and you'll find out as we find out. We'll see you next time.